Sunday school. All right, I want to welcome you guys again. My name is Doug. I'm the, the campus pastor here at Parkview East, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you on this Lord's Day and to be able to open God's Word with you. Uh, if you remember from last week, we uh, started a new series walking through the book of Philippians. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to take that out. If you are in need of one, uh, Mr. Craig has some. He's going to come around and he can hand one to you. Uh, but I would, I would encourage you to open up your Word to Philippians chapter 1. This morning, we're actually going to be looking at verses, just a, a few verses, um, verses 12 through 18. And so... Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. While you're turning there, I have a couple of giveaways this morning. All right, I'm not going to give them to you right now, but I'm just going to point them out, and then uh, they'll be at the front desk on your way out. So if this is, I don't have a lot, okay, but if this is interesting to you, um, I would invite you to take one. First of all is, as we're walking through the book of Philippians, you'll notice a word that Paul repeats over and over and over again. And it's in the first chapter alone, I think he says it six times, it's the word gospel, the gospel. And what we talked about last week is how Paul, I think one of the challenges that we face, especially in our secular sort of age, is that for many of us, um, the secularization that we live in may not cause us to abandon our faith. It, it's, in fact, for most of us, maybe for many of us who grew up in the church, the, the larger temptation is for the gospel to be squeezed into the periphery of our life. Okay? It's one of the dangers that we face. And so what we see as we read the book of Philippians is that for Paul, we saw this last week specifically in the way that he viewed his relationship with this church at Philippi, the church that he is writing this letter to. Remember, he's in uh, Roman jail and he is writing a letter to the church that he planted in Philippi about 10 years prior. Okay? And for Paul, what you notice that we looked at last week is that the gospel was placed at the very center of his relationship with these wonderful, wonderful people. Okay? And the result, or the, the reason for this, is because for Paul, the gospel was placed at the very center of his life. It defined who he was. And what we'll see this morning specifically is not just is it placed at the center of his life, but it's also placed at the center of his ambition. Okay, what Paul wants to see happen. And we'll see it as this kind of fleshes out in verses 12 through 18. We'll see this kind of come um, off the pages at us. But this morning what I thought I would do is, there's a couple of books here, giveaway at the end. Okay, this is called The Gospel. And so as we talk a lot about the gospel, and you wonder, okay, Philippians is super helpful in understanding how we can take the gospel and sh help shape our life. But, but the, the other prayer is not just that it shapes our lives individually, but also my prayer is that it shapes us corporately as a church, right? That our understanding of what the gospel message is, what the gospel message has done for us by, by, by God's grace, by his mercy, that we have been saved from our sins and that he has called us to a life a life of putting his glory on display to those around us, that it will shape dramatically how we love each other. Not just how we love each other, but also how we view the world around us. In fact, I would say the church would do, even in our days and our day today, like even if you've been on social media the last couple of, I don't know, days, right? There's no shortage of examples how a gospel-centered view of the world is necessary for Christians to navigate the world. Okay, so if you, if you need help in that, this is a helpful resource, a resource I found helpful. I'll put it on the table out there so you can grab that on your way out. 
Um, and then the other resource, just in light of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s day tomorrow, um, is this. I discovered this in high school. I don't know. I've never heard anybody reference it. I've never heard anybody talk about it. But for me, it has been wonderfully, wonderfully helpful in understanding Dr. King's, um, the way that he viewed the world. And, and really, the first, there's, this is a, it's just a couple of speeches that he gave, The Measure of a Man. Um, and the first one, really, is Dr. King walking through the gospel message. And so it's really appropriate for us this morning, especially, to, to, have, to be able to understand how God, Dr. King viewed the gospel message. So I discovered this in high school. It's been super helpful for me. I return to it about every year, not necessarily around this time, but I do return to it often. Um, and I do have a copy on my shelf. So if you take this, you're not taking it from me. If you don't get this and you would like a copy of it, just let me know. I think it's $1.99. I'll buy it for you. Okay, so that'll be out there on your way out as well. Okay, two resources that should hopefully be very helpful as we think through how do we become a gospel-centered people. Okay, so chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray for us, and we will go ahead and dive in. So verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by imprisonment, are much, much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let me pray for our time this morning. Father God, Lord, as we open up these words, Lord, I pray that you would use them to help us be a people who are formed and shaped, Lord, by your gospel by the work that you have done to make us your people, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we examine these words, your words right now, Father, that your spirit would be in this place. Lord, that he would, he would draw out your son, Father, that we might glorify you. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You know, there are some things, as I consider this text, I maybe think of some things in life that are really hard to stop, really hard to stop. Has anybody here ever, and you just raise your hand if you're too ashamed, I understand you don't have to. Has anybody here ever spent the night on an air mattress? Anybody? Unfortunate souls that you are, you may put your hand down, okay? Um, I can honestly say with all, with all honesty, with all integrity, I have never once slept on an air mattress, woken up in the morning and thought to myself, I'm really glad I did that. That was a fantastic, fantastic choice to sleep on that air mattress, okay? Every experience I've had with an air mattress has turned out horribly wrong, just terribly wrong. I end up, at the beginning of the night, it feels soft and, you know, cushiony, but by the end of the night, in the early morning, you're on the ground, right? And the air in that mattress, no matter what technology is in place, this is just my experience, folks. Maybe you've got a high-tech, high-quality air mattress at home that I'm unaware of. If you do, put me on after the service. But to my knowledge, there is not one exists that can successfully stop the air from getting out of that mattress, okay? 
I, I mean, usually I'll wake up and I look like a hot dog, like in the middle. I'm just laying there and the, the thing is wrapped up around me, okay? It's terrible. That air in that mattress is unstoppable. I'm convinced. There's nothing you can do to keep it in that mattress. It's coming out, okay? What we see in our message, in our, in our text this morning is, and it's a weird illustration for whatever reason, it's where my mind went, okay? But for Paul, remember he's writing this in prison, right? His situation is less than ideal. There is not, nobody here that would sign up for what Paul is enduring, what he's experiencing. Nobody here would want the situation that Paul finds himself in in these verses. Right? He's in jail. He's being imprisoned. He's in chains. Why is he in chains? For the gospel. Now his message to the Philippians as he writes these words should have brought tremendous encouragement to them and they should do so for us here this morning. His message to them is very, very simple. The gospel is unstoppable. There is nothing you can do that will keep the gospel from doing what God had intended it to do. The advance of the gospel itself is absolutely unstoppable. And Paul can find joy and he can find comfort in his circumstances knowing that the gospel, regardless of what situation he finds himself in, the gospel will go forward. Why can Paul do this? Why can Paul do this? I mean, if you think of Paul's situation, again, it's less than ideal. This man is in jail. Yet remarkably, what we don't find as we read the book of Philippians is we don't find a man who's been filled with discouragement. We do not find a man who is terrified of what lies ahead. We, we do not find a man who word after word after word is complaining and grumbling about his situation. Right? As, as we read this letter, what we don't see is a Paul who wants a way out of jail. In fact, the whole letter is a thank you note. It's a thank you note to his friends, this church at Philippi. Now... If word, just, just to be clear, if word makes it back to Parkview East, that your beloved campus pastor has been wrongfully incarcerated, held against his will for proclaiming the good news of Jesus, I can assure you that the note I write to you will be a lot shorter than what Paul wrote to the Philippian church, right? My note will probably be about five words. Get me out of here, okay? That's what's going to come from my word, from my mouth. Get me out of here. But that's not what we see in Paul, right? As we think about his persecution and his perspective, the, the way that he shapes his response to seeing his circumstances, how he responds to it, when I look at these words, in my heart, in my soul, I find myself saying, I want this. What Paul has is what I want. My hope and my prayer for you this morning is that we look at these words, you will find yourself drawing the exact same conclusion, right? Many of us, like Paul, will face difficult times in life. Many of us, our lives will be, maybe have been filled with sorrow, with suffering. Maybe we've been surrounded by people who do not understand us. 
or who seek to take advantage of us or maybe even neglect us. And, and as we read through these brief, short six verses, we see that Paul is facing persecution, resistance, hostility from outside the church and even from within the church. Yet, the words that Paul uses to describe his attitude, his demeanor, are words such as joy, thankful, right? Paul is not complaining to them. And, and to me, when I look at his response, this is what I want, right? This, this is what I want. And, and every single one of us should want this exact same thing. As life beats in, on us and threatens to discourage us or disappoint us? Don't you want something, something to stand on that no matter what comes your way will not be shaken? Will not be shaken. Folks, the reason why Paul is able to look at his situation, his circumstances, which are terrible painful situation and still have words like joy and thankfulness to describe his, his response is because he's standing on something that can't be moving. He is, he is sinking his teeth into something that cannot be taken away from him, right? Paul has taken the gospel message and he has placed it at the very center of his ambition, and as a result, all that matters to Paul is that the gospel is advancing, that it's moving forward, right? We see two different ways in the text by which the gospel... Paul makes this a, a pretty amazing claim at the beginning. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me... You see it there in verse 12. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel... He's making this amazing claim that the very way that they're trying to keep Paul restricted and keep the gospel from moving forward has actually in turn caused just the opposite reaction. Instead, the gospel is advancing. Three times in these verses, Paul refers to what has happened to him, specifically his imprisonment. We see in verse 13, my imprisonment is for Christ. You see it in verse 14. The brothers have become confident in my imprisonment. In verse 17, again, thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. Three times he refers to his imprisonment. When Paul speaks of his imprisonment, what Paul is claiming is remarkable. His chains are producing progress on the gospel front. The chains around his ankles, his wrists are resulting in gospel advancement. They're moving the gospel forward. Three times in these verses, he holds up his chains. And, and Paul tells the church at, at Philippi, do you see my chains? Do you see these chains? What do these chains represent? Bondage, hindrance, slavery, injustice, maybe discouragement or fear? Not for Paul. For Paul, those chains meant opportunity. Those chains for Paul meant progress. Those chains for Paul meant purpose. The very chains which were designed to keep him back 
and are in turn used to let the gospel go forward. It's an amazing, amazing thing. How, how, does this, how is this possible? How is it possible for these chains to allow the gospel to advance? Well, he gives us two reasons. First, look at verse 13. At verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This praetorian guard that Paul is referring to was an elite unit in the Roman army. Its members were hand-picked veterans who would serve as personal bodyguards to the Roman, to Roman emperors, to Caesar himself. This elite group, some people estimate to be as large as 9,000 individuals that would make up this particular group of soldiers, would at time be used to actually take power from Caesar himself. They deposed and promoted Caesars at their will. One of their tasks also included guarding prisoners who were awaiting to be sentenced. They would have taken turns with prisoners, physically being chained to them, maybe four to six hours at a time. So as Paul is writing these letter, this letter, odds are that there is a Roman guard who is chained to him at the present moment. But these powerful men, they did not intimidate Paul. They did not intimidate. You can see it now as each guard would rotate on and off duty. Paul saw one opportunity after another. All right? Ha have you heard? Oh, it's your turn to be shackled to me. Wonderful. Have you heard of Jesus? L let me tell you about the chains that I'm in and about how these chains are actually for Jesus because I belong to Jesus. He, he came to, to save me from my sins, and, and he could do the exact same thing for you. In fact, Jesus died for my sins. God raised him from the dead, where he now sits in heaven, exalted at the right hand of God, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Day after day, shift after shift, Roman guard after Roman guard is having the gospel preached over and over and over again. So much so that by the end of the book in Philippians chapter 4 verse 22, Paul will say, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now let me ask you a question. How would you think the gospel got to Caesar's household? I'll tell you how. Because of Paul's chains. Because of Paul's chains. The palace guard would, would normally see the chains on a prisoner as evidence of Caesar's power. Caesar's lordship. Caesar's control. Not so when they looked at the chains on Paul. When they looked at Paul, those exact same chains pointed to the unmatched, unstoppable power of the gospel. And as we look at his chains this morning, it should point us to the exact same thing. So the first way that we see the gospel advancing through his imprisonment is simply through his chains, right? Those Roman guards hearing the gospel day in and day out. The second way that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel is that others have grown confident and they have become more bold to speak this message, to share the gospel message. Look at verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
Other Christians, likely those throughout Rome, saw Paul in action. They saw, they too saw the chains and most likely feared the worst. But instead, they witnessed Paul's response to his imprisonment and they grew in confidence. They were moved from fear to boldness. The story is told of two English reformers in 1555 Oxford, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were faithful witnesses to Christ and they were burned at the stake. And as the fires were lit, Latimer shouted out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The example of those two martyrs would encourage generations of Christians to boldly proclaim Christ even in the face of fear, right? It's Tertullian, the great church historian and early church father who said that it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church, right? When, when early Christians saw other Christians giving their life for this gospel, it cemented in their hearts that this was worth dying for and that nothing could stop it. So as Paul is in prison proclaiming God's message, the picture throughout Rome is that other Christians are seeing, seeing and hearing of what is happening. And their faith is strengthened and their words they proclaim with more boldness. And as a result, the gospel advances. The gospel advances. It's a wonderful reminder that there are plenty of things that can come into our life which can be meant to harm us. They can be meant to slow us down, and they can be meant to stop us. But it is possible that God has allowed those things to come into our life because he intends to turn them for his gospel good. So even as you examine your life right now, like, we're not in jail, okay? Nobody that's here right now is in jail. I think I can say that safely, right? But there definitely are other things that you and I wrestle with on a daily basis that can, if we're not careful, can seek to discourage us. Just small things, even at work, a, a, a look of sarcasm when we're speaking with a colleague, right? A discouraging word, a post on social media by somebody who doesn't understand the gospel message, Right? Or maybe those who have taken the message and perverted it and are, are poor witnesses to the faith that God has called us to. There are so many things in our world right now that can, if we're not careful, discourage us from boldly proclaiming God's word. But what Paul shows us, what Paul shows us is that that persecution, God, when, when we take the gospel and we place it at the very center of our ambition, God will take the gospel and move it forward regardless of our circumstances. Isn't that an awesome thing? Even when you don't know the words, like just recently I had a, uh, there's a, a couple who I am counseling for marriage and unsure that they know the gospel message. And I had, I had planned to really share the gospel with them. And I got into that room that evening and I fumbled over some words. Like, I'm your pastor and I just confess, like, I did, it was difficult based on the, the response I thought I was going to get but I didn't get. And I was like, okay, well, where do I go now? And they kept turning, right? 
And, and a half an hour later, like I was sweating and I was thinking I was doing a terrible, terrible job, right? The next day, and I left, honestly, I left that meeting highly discouraged and convinced I just ruined it. I just blew it. The next day I got a, a text message from one of the individuals telling me that, the other, that the, their future spouse was so thankful that they had never understood the Bible so clearly before. And, I, and I'm dead serious. And like I literally got that message, my heart just sank, and I just sang out in praise, right? Even our fumblings, God can take those and he can turn them for his gospel advancement, right? Don't let the fear stop you. Right? Don't let the fact that you don't have all the right answers stop you. God can use chains to advance, Caesar's chains to advance the gospel. Okay? Next thing that we see is that Paul faces, uses his chains, but we also see it direct his attention in verses 15 to 18 to Paul's critics. It's another bleak situation. And uh, we see in these verses, I'll just read them again real quick. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in, the, in my imprisonment. So Paul here is referring to another group of individuals who are also making things difficult for him. What's, what's interesting about this second group of people is that from what we can tell, again, we don't know much about who he's talking about, but what we do know is that he sees these individuals as fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Th these are Christian people, right? It's not enough that Paul is being afflicted by forces outside the church, but those that are hostile to his message. He's also being, facing affliction from those within the church, fellow Christians, his own brothers and sisters. These folks would be unlike those that Paul addressed in Galatians chapter 1, who he accuses of preaching a different gospel. He says that they have, those in Galatians 1, have distorted the gospel of Christ. Paul makes no such claim here. It's not the content of their message that is wrong. Rather, it is their motives, their motive behind proclaiming Christ. It's not that they're anti it's not that they're anti Jesus, it's that these individuals are anti Paul. Okay? They're anti Paul. Now again, we don't know who Paul's talking about, but it's not hard to see how this situation could produce such a curious response from these Christians. You can imagine that there's Christians in Rome proclaiming Christ, working in ministry, maybe planting churches, and along comes Paul, Paul, this famed missionary and church planter. And from his jail, Paul has gotten the gospel to Caesar's household. Meanwhile, these other Christians may be growing discouraged, seeing little fruit. They look at Paul and instead of rejoicing that the gospel is going forward, they are met with selfish ambition. Maybe the fruit that Paul is seeing, they want in their ministry. They want in their life. But for whatever reason, Paul, God's using Paul to advance it. Now, it's not too difficult to put yourself in that sort of a situation, right? 
It's not too difficult. In fact, we see in our day and age, we see, are faced with a lot of similar temptations to what these Christians faced in their day. New churches popping up in town all the time. New ministries. Just this week, I heard of another individual who's seeking to move to Iowa City to plant a church. They could come in and completely disregard the churches that have faithfully been here for years, ministering to people, proclaiming the gospel. They, they could potentially even come in and disrespect churches that are here faithfully ministering the gospel. They could come and they could be politically motivated. Their motives could be misplaced. There could be all different kinds of reasons that would make them want to be proclaiming. They could come and they could want to proclaim the message in this town, not to elevate Christ, but to elevate their own image. That's a possibility, okay? And what is Paul's response as he considers these folks who've maybe started to proclaim Christ from wrong motives? Paul's response, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That's what matters most to Paul. You know, I can't judge and discern and know the motives of other ministers, nor should I try. I would lose much sleep, okay? It's an encouragement for us as a church, as we look across the landscape of our community and our city, and we see other community of believers, of faithful Christians, brothers and sisters who proclaim Jesus, our response should be and will be the same. As long as Christ is proclaimed. Right? For some reason, for years... This is a really hard thing for churches to do. It is. Oftentimes, and I'm faced with the same temptation, oftentimes churches will view their community as a territory that belongs to them, right? And that shouldn't be the case. We are, God has made one body. It's his church. And we are to compete for his gospel and to proclaim his name. What then, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That should be what drives us. The, the proclamation of Jesus and his gospel. Now, two things to keep in mind. Paul does not condemn, or he does not commend their attitude. Okay, So it's a selfish ambition, and we know this because in chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, of verse 3, he charges the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So Paul, although he recognizes their motives are misplaced, he, he makes sure to not commend those motives. All right, And Paul is only able to do this, ultimately, because Paul has taken the gospel again and he's placed it at the very center of his ambition. And for Paul, what matters most is this unstoppable gospel moving throughout the world. That's his primary ambition and concern. So, finally, just Paul's concern. So we saw Paul's um, chains, we saw his critics, and now his concern. Why is Paul telling them his imprisonment, why is he telling, why is he spending? I mean, this, is a, this, this letter is four chapters long. 
And he's spending a significant amount of time telling, him about how, telling them about how his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. Why is he doing this? Well, first, I think, to strengthen their faith in the gospel. Okay? If you were to look up at verse 6, we saw this last week. Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 1, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing to his current situation as proof that what he just claimed in verse 6 is true. That it is true. The gospel has him in chains, but yet it's utterly unstoppable. The gospel that you have given yourself to, in the words of young guns, can't stop and won't stop. All right? It can't stop and it won't stop. And Paul is showing his situation is evidence of that glorious reality. It encourages them to trust that when things don't go as they should, God will always make a way to turn them for your good. That's what God does. And the next reason why Paul is addressing this, why he's sharing this, is to remind them that they all have enemies. Paul has enemies. He has people who are attacking him outside the church and inside the church. And likewise, this church at Philippi, is gonna, they're going to meet adversity as well. There's going to be those who are going to be hostile to their message, to their Christ as they proclaim him. He says this in chapter two, verse, chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There, as long as you proclaim Jesus, there will be those who will oppose Jesus. Okay? Be ready for that. Do not be surprised for that. And I think another reason why Paul is doing this is because what Paul is, I think, ultimately able to do himself, he wants to see this young church who he loves dearly do the exact same thing. Ultimately, that they would lift their gaze that their minds might be set on Christ. He charges them to do this very thing in chapter 2. I don't know if you guys saw, uh, recently there was a, a meme, just a couple days ago, I think, maybe it was earlier this week, or I can't remember when I saw it, but it was of a couple of UCL, UCLA basketball players. Um, anybody who's followed the UCLA program has known it's kind of had its ups and downs, or mostly downs in the last couple of years. And there's a, there's a video that went viral of a, of a player, and I have no idea the context, what happened prior to this. All you know is you see the basketball player running down the court, and he's got his head like this, and just a look of discouragement. And behind him comes a teammate, a concerned teammate, who sees the discouragement. I don't know if you've seen this or not. He comes behind him, puts his arm around him, I believe, gently takes his hand and just goes like this. Lifts up his head. Just puts his hand right under his chin and lifts up his head redirects this man's gaze, right? He was discouraged and he was down, maybe fearful, maybe feeling guilty like he's letting people down. And his teammate comes along and gently lifts up his gaze, lifts up his head. Paul, in a very gentle and loving way, is doing the exact same thing to his church, right? He's coming alongside and it's, it's easy to look out at the difficulties surrounding us, at the suffering, at the circumstances, at the pain, at the toil, at the fruitlessness, and to grow discouraged and to think that the gospel's not advancing. And Paul takes this, these wonderful words, comes alongside this beloved church and gently lifts their eyes up and shows them that this gospel you have given your lives to can't be stopped and it won't be stopped. God can even use chains to move it forward. It's a wonderful, wonderful reminder for the Church of Philippi and for us this morning. 
that regardless of what situation we may find ourselves in. And, and Paul doesn't, God is not minimizing our difficulties. He does not minimize our sorrows and our pain and our grief. You can find evidence of that all throughout the scripture. That when we feel pain, God says he's near to the brokenhearted, right? It's not wrong to be maybe fearful of what lies ahead. It's not wrong to be sorrowful, to, to grieve or to mourn. Paul is not condemning that. God does not condemn that. There is a time and a place to lament, right? Even as we look at our situation in our world today, like a pro, an appropriate response of a Christian who looks out and sees not just our nation kind of tearing at each other, but also our church, the churches tearing at each other, taking shots at one another. That should grieve us. And it's an appropriate biblical response to lament, okay? But Paul's also telling us and reminding us that this gospel that we have given ourselves to, it can't be and it won't be stopped. It should be an encouragement to us today. Now, we, Craig, is Sierra in here or not? She, oh, she's right there, great. We're going to give you, um, there's so many opportunities to advance this gospel in our community, specifically here at Parkview East. Right? We think of this ministry of the spot, of Faith Academy, of community groups. If you haven't signed up for one of those, we'd love to have you join one of those. There are always opportunities to serve this community and to take this gospel and to move it forward. Um, Sierra has been a part of a ministry. Many of you have served um, over the last couple of years where we have been throwing these Sudanese parties at Parkview Central Campus a couple of times a year. And Sierra had uh, a wonderful thing happen recently, and she was just going to come up and share and then tell us a little bit more about how we could get involved. Sound good? This one 